0: Welcome, my geeky, geeky friends, to a bonus, is it a bonus, is it really a bonus, an extra edition of Geeking with Destination Venus. We are not normally posting new material on a Saturday, but we have just got a long way behind with stuff we really, really, really want to talk about. I mean, I haven't had a chance to go and see Guardians of the Galaxy yet. What is going on? There is just no time. So, let's get started. I mentioned in Thursday's show that I would be talking more about the launch of SpaceX's starship rocket. Because there is quite a lot to unpack there. Oh, First things first. This flight was, on the face of it, a success. Now, that might strike some of you as odd, given that the spacecraft, how do we put it, experienced a rapid pyrotechnic deconstructive event in flight which is to say it blew up now don't panic there was nobody aboard even the muskrat isn't that crazy it was an even's chance well elon musk put it as an even's chance i actually reckoned it was probably about 60 40 in favor of this thing blowing up as previously noted on this show It's got 36 Raptor engines in the first stage. And whilst the Raptor is a very well tried and tested and extraordinarily reliable rocket engine as rocket engines go. 36? In one go? Come on. There's a huge, huge possibility for misfire there. As it happens, I don't think it was actually one of the Raptors that was the cause of the problem. But whether it was or not, the thing blew up. And nobody who was in the know was that surprised. Better look next time. And when next time will be. Well, we'll talk about that. But the the mission goal was to put Starship in orbit. And had they done that, that would have been. Oh, man, that would have been astonishing. I mean, the, the level of success and brilliance that that would have been is genuinely not to be taken lightly. And they will do it. I'm sure they will do it. They just haven't done it yet. So that was the goal. But the main objective, the point at which Musk himself said, we can call it a success, was, will it clear the launch pad? And it did. And it did better than that. It reached reached separation altitude. But I I think I have to point you back at the launch pad uh, to show you what one of the big problems with this beast might have been. And... Last last episode, I said I would justify calling Musk stupid. And this is why I think he's stupid. I think this was an ill-advised launch. And I don't think he's done his company's reputation any good. He clearly doesn't give a monkey's about his reputation. And, you know, fair play to him for that. And to be honest, with everything that's going on at Twitter... I, I think his reputation is pretty much shot at this point. But SpaceX itself has a good reputation, which he has willfully and surely knowingly damaged. Because I think he's stupid, but I don't think he's an idiot. Basically, the reason I think he's stupid is he rushed the launch. They had a launch window, yes. But whilst the ma- the machine itself was ready the spacecraft itself, clearly ready. But I don't think you can say that the launch pad was, and I think what happened at launch demonstrates that. If you look at any video of any shuttle launch or any Saturn V launch that NASA have done, you will see underneath the launch pad, just before the rocket ignites, They pour billions, well, millions, certainly, of gallons of water underneath the launch pad so that when the the rocket launches, all of that water is basically suppressing the shock waves. Now, NASA does that for a couple of reasons. First, it prevents damage to the rocket itself. If you have a massive rocket pointing downwards, when you ignite those engines, they produce an awful lot of thrust. Before the rocket starts moving, that thrust, that energy is going somewhere. There has to be an equal and opposite reaction. That's new. Well, if the rocket itself is not moving upwards, all of that power is being focused on blasting the ground. That's going to blow chunks out of the ground. Potentially, that blows chunks of the ground into the rocket, causing damage, potentially explosive damage. Now, that isn't what happened to Starship, but that can happen. And NASA uses this water buffer to stop that happening. The other thing it does is it absorbs a lot of the impact. I mean, you see a lot of the energy from the launch being turned into steam. That's what the huge plumes of steam are when when you see a shuttle launch. And that stops chunks of ground being blasted out all over the place. And it stops the launch pad being blasted apart by the force of the rocket. Musk wasn't using one of those in the launch at Texas the other week. And so what happened was that a huge amount of debris was blasted into the air by the launch of the rocket. The launch pad was utterly destroyed. And, you know, SpaceX is now facing uh, lawsuits and such for property damage caused by things that fell from the sky because they were blasted into the sky by Starship. All of that could have been avoided had they waited until they'd got a proper blast suppression system installed at the launch pad. They chose not to do that. I say they chose not to. They were given their instructions about when they had to launch. And it seems that Musk was particularly keen to launch on um, the 20th of April, because in the American dating system, which puts the month first, that's 420. And Now, I don't fully understand this, but apparently that's got something to do with weed. Some, I, I think it might be the date on which weed was legalized in California, or maybe maybe it's the, the number of the bill that legalized weed in California. It's something like that. I, I'm, I'm not into weed, so I, I don't pay attention to such things. But I've heard Americans of the sort of stoner bent go on a little bit about 420, and apparently Musk was quite keen to launch on 420 for that reason, because we, dude, and uh, if I didn't think he was a childish idiot already, come on, that is, if that's the reason, and obviously Musk has not confirmed this, but everything I know about Elon Musk makes me think that that's plausible, if that's the reason, that is the stupidest decision I have heard made in space for some time. So, yeah, that's how I justify calling Musk stupid. His actions were stupid. I don't think he's a stupid man. I don't think he can be. Although, again, I point you at what's happening at Twitter and I, I, I have to wonder. So, so where are we? Well, Musk is playing down the damage done by the launch and sort of saying, you know, it basically you know, there's nothing hazardous in all of that blowout. It was just the ground. So all we did was create a man-made sandstorm effectively. But we don't want to do that again. And so he's saying there's going to be a blast suppression system at the launch pad the next time they launch a starship. So he's learned. That's good. He says that they can have the pad ready and the next starship and heavy lift first stage ready to go in six to eight weeks. I don't know whether that's true or not. Musk is notorious at this point for being, shall we say, optimistic with timescales. But in any case, it doesn't matter. Because at the moment, he doesn't have a license to launch another starship. He doesn't have a license from the US FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. He doesn't have a license that allows him to go for orbit again. So at this stage, at least, he can be as ready as he likes he simply is not allowed to do another starship launch until the FAA get round to giving him approval and they are looking quite closely into what went on at the launch this time because there was damage done to property some considerable distance away and you know you can't have that i mean there's there is a reason they stuck the kennedy space center right on the end of the florida peninsula it's not just that it's close to the equator it's that it's empty. And it's mostly sea. The area that anything that drops off a rocket is likely to hit, up to and including the rocket itself, is the Atlantic Ocean. And if it goes the other way, it's the Gulf of Mexico. There's almost no land to hit. He's launching from Texas. Yes, he's launching from a coastal location. But if you go east or west from his launch site, you hit land. It's it's not a terrible place for a ballistic rocket launch site, but it's not the best. And you know, they are the FAA is gonna wanna be really, really sure of what's happening there. Before they give the go-ahead for any more Starship launches. Now that's that's disappointing. I mean I, I am disappointed in I guess in SpaceX, although mostly in Elon, for this, because This potentially puts an awful lot of stuff on hold. The Artemis program is launching crew aboard the space launch system and Orion capsules. So that, you know, Artemis 2 is not affected by the existence of Starship. But further Artemis missions are planning to use a Starship type rocket as their landing and ascension module. So if there's no starship in space, that potentially puts a real crimp in Artemis. And that would be a blow. So so what's next? Well, if they do another test launch anytime soon, the idea will be to do what this mission should have done, which is launch beyond launch tower that's the first criteria and then to get to first stage separation which would drop the heavy lift first stage into the atlantic ocean now that would not normally be the procedure but that's the procedure for now in future missions the idea is just like the falcon 9 and falcon heavy rockets do now that the first stage would return to base effectively and land beautifully on its tail, like Thunderbird 3 used to, which would be a heck of an achievement if they ever manage to get to make that happen. That will be one heck of an achievement. It's one thing doing it with the Falcon 9; it's quite something else doing it with 36 Raptors. So you know, you can't—you simply cannot fault their ambition. Uh, but anyway, that's for the future. Uh, in the most immediate next mission, hopefully then the second stage, which is the Starship rocket itself, will ignite, ascend to orbit, do some orbits, and then come back down. And again, I don't think they're planning to recover the Starship stage in the early test flights. I think that's just going to ditch in the Atlantic. But again, in future, the whole of the Starship rocket will then return to Earth and land on its tail. If it ever does that with crew aboard, I will be, well, worried, frankly, because that's an incredibly dangerous thing to do with people on board. You would need a, a really rock-solid safety record. Uh, but potentially, again, that would that would be unbelievably cool. Will it happen? Ah, uh, I think so. If you asked me that five years ago, I'd have said no, simply because at that time I, I just didn't believe the technology was possible. Now it it clearly is. It, It just is. And because it's possible, all it needs to make it happen is money throwing at it. Now, at the moment, SpaceX and Musk are not hurting for money. So, right now, it'll happen. Musk's net worth continues to fall because of his shenanigans on Twitter, mostly. If that continues, it is theoretically possible that SpaceX could run out of money. And if it does, then then it's not going to happen. Uh, I think it will because if Musk is no longer capable, I mean, it's not like he's funding SpaceX himself anyway. Uh, he's getting his money from the US government via NASA. So, I mean, it would need NASA to, A, completely lose confidence in Musk, and B, have somewhere else to go for that capability. Now, at the moment, they're not showing any signs of losing confidence in Musk, which, well, I'm assuming they're not paying attention, but in any case, And at the moment, even if they do lose confidence in Musk, there's nowhere for them to go. Where are they going to go? Who else has got this capability? Nobody. Nobody's even got this capability on the drawing board. So unless somebody like Boeing comes up with a really late challenger, Musk and SpaceX are the only game in town for this. So we'll see. We will see. I mean, Musk is very gung ho, but then Musk is always very gung ho. We will await the verdict of the federal Aviation Administration to see what criteria they lay down for any future license to launch a starship into orbit. And we'll, you know, we'll we'll keep you informed as and when more information becomes available. But for now, we'll leave the starship there. Okay, so on with some more of the geeky news. And we're going to take a trip into comics. And the, um, Not the politics so much, but the economics and the industry of comics. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago now that one of my favourite publishers, uh, Aftershock, had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Now, that's because they were really beginning to struggle financially. Now, there are all kinds of reasons for that. I, I think they always were a little bit optimistic with the volume that they were publishing and maybe they went for some bigger names that they perhaps couldn't quite afford. I'm not sure. They're soldiering on over Aftershock. Uh, I've got a lot of time for the company. I, I I don't have a lot of time for the way they have hitherto dealt with their issues. Uh, they have left an awful lot of artists and writers hanging and waiting for money that they might now never get and that's you know not fair but they have been a great publisher and they're not publishing very many single issues at the moment I think what's really happening is they're wrapping up the series that were ongoing which again I've got a lot of respect for that because companies like Marvel don't do that when times get tough so you know I've got to respect that and what they are doing is they're taking the stuff that they've got, the stuff that's finished that they own, that they've paid for, and you know we can talk about the contract a little bit. Maybe I mean not now, but at some point, because I don't I don't know exactly what the creators get when in terms of, of royalties when things are reprinted, but it's a lot cheaper to pay royalties to creators for reprints than it is to commission new stuff. So they are bringing back into print collections of all of the Aftershot Greatest Hits, things like um, the um, post-apocalyptic animosity series, where it's basically like Walking Dead, but instead of zombies, it's talking animals. Uh, and it's a lot better than that sound. So they're finding ways of generating revenue, which hopefully will help them pay their debts, pay their creators, and get them out of this hole. And then maybe they can find some new source of financing and carry on. But times are clearly very tough in the comics industry. And one of the larger independent companies, IDW, has, and I'm putting this into heavy air quotes now, hit reset. And by what what they mean by that is they've laid off 39% of their staff and appointed a new uh, chief executive officer. Now, they hope that these layoffs will save them $4.4 million a year, which actually does tell you something about the size of the company. But it's not great news. They've also removed themselves from the New York Stock Exchange. So, I mean, it's not just it's not just the comics side of thing. IDW Media Holdings does more than just comics. It's got a sort of TV arm and stuff as well. So, I mean, we will see what comes of this. Things are feeling very unstable. IDW, I still think of as a fairly new company. Um, They've actually been around since 1999, so what, nearly 25 years now, and they're generally recognised as the fifth biggest. US publisher. They're, they're obviously they're behind giants like Marvel and DC. Uh, they're also behind Dark Horse and Image. But they've been the home to a lot of really important comics. Uh, if you watched Net uh, Lock and Key on Netflix, that started as an IDW comic uh from Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. Uh Ben Templesmith and Steve Niles worked on Thirty Days of Night. You may remember the movie. That started as an IDW comic. And they've also been big, and this this might be what's done for them slightly, they've also been big in licensed comics. Uh, they have published Star Trek, Transformers, Doctor Who, CSI, and they're losing a lot of those licenses now. Transformers is leaving IDW. Doctor Who has left IDW. So, you know... Th- the the future of, of their cash cows has been uncertain for a bit, and they've also lost you know several high profile people. Um, their executive vice president and head of uh, IDW Media's entertainment division, Paul Davidson, uh, has gone. The head of publishing, uh, Naty Musham, has gone, and their former chief financial officer, uh, Brooke Feinstein, obviously has gone. That's why he's the former. Chief Financial Officer. What that's going to mean for various projects uh, based on their comics is now up in the air. There were various projects that have been announced um, to be in development last year with Anima Studios, the Cartoon Network, HBO, Max, which of course is undergoing its own issues right now, uh, Universal Content Productions, Universal International Studios, and Warner Brothers all had IDW projects in the works. Now, if those don't happen now, that's another really important marketing platform. IDW comics are not gonna have and ah, it's all making me nervous guys it's all making me nervous which brings me to the way we avoid this stuff how do we evade the vagaries of the international publishing world well by not playing is the honest answer One of the things I've always loved about comics, one of the things that drew me to comics in the first place, the reason I am here, if you like, is my fascination with making your own stuff. Now, that used to be really difficult, at least in any if you're going to do it in any kind of professional-looking way. I come from a background, because I'm old, of what we would have called zines, which is a, a corruption of the word magazine. But it came to me something specific. It started in the, I don't know, I guess as as far back as the 60s, probably, although that's before even my time. And often it was connected to music. Uh, The first scenes I was aware of were in the late 70s when I was a very small child and early 80s when there were lots of scenes around the punk scene. And it was very much a do-it-yourself ethos. As we got to the end of the 80s, The zines were mostly that I was aware of, mostly about music, which, I'll be honest, did not interest me that much. But there were also people starting to make comics. And the comic shop that I frequented back in the day, the much-missed Nostalgia and Comics on Matilda Street in Sheffield, was a place where you would get, just on the counter, just stacked up, little A5 photocopied 8, 10... 12 page, maybe folded up photocopied comics that people had literally run off on their office photocopier or their school photocopier, probably when the people who were responsible for the photocopier weren't looking. And I was fascinated by this stuff because you could do whatever you liked. There was no editorial control, there was nobody saying that you couldn't do something. You just did it. And yes, you probably weren't going to make any money. But you could get your stuff out there. And it was as the 80s wore on, I became aware of people like um, Peter Eastman and Kevin Led, who created the Teenage Mutant and Ninja Turtles, which became huge and are still to this day a complete phenomenon. Well, that started off as two dudes just doodling stuff for a laugh. And it took off and they became multi-millionaires and then fell out. And that was all very sad. And stuff like Deadline magazine grew out of that scene. Um, Hewlett and Martin's Tank Girl grew out of that. That was when in the first ep- uh, issue of Deadline. And it was incredibly creative. And then in the mid-90s, I went to my first comic con, the much-missed UKAC, the UK Comic Art Convention in London. Where I came across something I, I, I'd, I'd never had a name for before, uh, which was the small press, which is to say, people who made their own comics. Now, it was there that I came across the first professional looking stuff. Um, there was McKinnon um, and Wiley's Sleaze Castle, a, a collection of which is still available at Destination Venus, uh, and if you were to buy, Anything that Terry Wiley contributed to, the entire sale proceeds of that will go to Brain Tumor Research because that's how we lost Terry Wiley a few years ago. And um, Dave McGinnon gave me some of their work to sell, and I still have some of it. Anybody who buys anything by McKinnon and Wiley. Uh, is direct contributing to break tumor research, which is, as long-term listeners will know, a subject very close to my heart. But I digress. Um, It was also at that first UCAT that I went to, I came across the work of Dave Hitchcock, who was illustrating a comic called The Highwayman. And I came across the work of um, the people behind a comic called Vogarth, which I'm afraid I've lost my issue of that. And I... Cannot remember the names of the people behind it. If you happen to know anything about Vogoth, please let let me know. Come back to me because I would love to find out what happened with that particular comic. But it was it was all people who had day jobs, but loved to make comics, and for the just for the love of it, they put their time and their effort and their money into making stuff. Most of them weren't even breaking even. Most of them regarded it as a moderately expensive hobby. But the quality of work was astounding. And I, I continued to be attracted by the small press. And as UCAC faded away at the end of the 90s and was replaced by the Bristol Comic Festival in Bristol, surprisingly, I met even more people. And by, by hanging around with the people who made their own comics, I got to be part of a community of people. And that's when I first met Berbys Mousson, who at the time was producing uh, a zine-style comic, photocopied A4 stuff, called The Queen of Diamonds, which was a stunning take on superheroes. And I know I say that a lot about comics, but this really was. I loved The Queen of Diamonds. Uh, it It was a gay superhero who could literally spin on a dime. Their powers were all sparkly light. And what was really attractive to me about The Queen was the way they could pivot from being also sparkly and fabulous and sassy to utterly terrifying in the space of a panel. And I I just loved the characterization of that. Um, Something that Bev did extraordinarily well. Um, Bevis has moved on now. Uh, He went on to do The Dead Queen Detectives uh, and is now coming up with, I can't remember what they're called now, The the Countess Something, in much in the same vein as The Dead Queen Detectives. Uh, A much more cartoony thing than the Queen ever was. Uh, But when Thought Bubble comes to town, and this is where this conversation is going, Bev will be there. Bev is um, exhibiting at Thought Bubble this year. Missed last year, uh, was there the year before that. And if you were to go to Thought Bubble, which I highly recommend, I think anyone who's been listening to this show for any length of time at all understands fine well how I feel about Thought Bubble. If you go there, you will find lots of people who make their own stuff. Most of them are not making a living at it. Most of them are doing it for the sheer joy. And because they've got something to say, and because comics are the most ac- uh, a democratic medium, the most accessible medium that you can possibly work, work in, all you need is a pa- piece of paper and a pencil, and you can make comics. But you will also see that there are many people who are making comics that look and feel exactly like the kind of comics that the likes of IDW and Marvel and DC and Dark Horse and Image are putting out. In terms of production values, it used to be impossibly, prohibitively expensive to do that kind of thing by yourself. I know because I tried. Back in my university days, me and some friends tried to do a comic. And we talked to printers about you know how much would it cost to have a print run of a few hundred of this. And it would have worked out at like a tenner a copy. It was just insanity so we didn't do it. we went the photocopy route and we had a a thing called random which wasn't very good what people are doing now though because of digital printing technology the costs of production have come right down it's still not cheap but it's now affordable to people if they want to like do that as their main hobby it's it's as expensive as regularly going to see football or playing warhammer you know, it's, it's that order of magnitude of expensive rather than you might need to sell your car kinds of expensive. And so you'll see people like Matt Garvey, whose work I'm, I feature quite heavily in the shop, all of whom produce their own stuff. Some write and draw, some only write and hire in an artists, some only draw and work with writers, but you know, there's a lot of collaboration that goes on. And I've been thinking about that. One of my things about Thought Bubble is it's the best and the biggest pure comics convention in the country. There are bigger things that call themselves comic conventions, but they're not really. They're nerd fests. They're geek conventions, which, hey, I'm all for. But you're not really a comic con if 90% of what you do is Pokemon cards and people dressed as stormtroopers and... Uh, the, the guy who was third Cyberman from the left in Doctor Who signing things. Now, I don't knock any of that. And I'm here for all of that. And there are cons in Harrogate this year that will give you that. And heaven knows I will be there. But Thought Bubble is not that. Thought Bubble is all about comics. And I love comics. And so I I want to do two things. When the world of comics comes to Harrogate, I want to get those people out of the convention center and into the town because I also love Harrogate and I wanna show it off to people. So, I am putting together an art trail. I'm gonna be working with local independent businesses um, who I'll be speaking to over the next week or two to persuade them that it would be in their interest to display the work of artists, comics, artists. And I'm gonna create a trail around the town to get people out of the convention centre and around the town looking at the art, perhaps buying a coffee in a coffee shop that's displaying the art on their way. Because I want to introduce the comics reading public that are coming to the convention. I want to introduce those people to Harrogate so that maybe they can see what I see in the place. But I also want to introduce Harrogate to comics. And you know, I, I will be honest, there is an element of mercenariness in that. I sell comics. Actually, no, I don't. I was going to say I sell comics for a living. No, I don't. I lose money on selling the comics. Um, But I aspire to selling comics for a living. And if more people in Harrogate liked comics and understood what they were capable of, that might do me some good. But that's not really why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I just want more people to enjoy comics. And if as they go into the places they normally go into the coffee shops and the bars around Harrogate that they normally go into and they can see on the wall innovative and striking comic art. That might make a couple of them interested. Just a thought. So that's one of the things I want to do. Uh, And if you are somebody who does comic art and you're listening to this, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the email address to get in touch with if you'd like to offer your art for display in the art trail. Uh, Just so we're clear, this is not one of those things where I expect you to give me art for exposure. No, this is where I expect you to lend me art that you've probably made anyway. I'm not expecting people to go out of their way to create special work for this. Although anyone who does, extra point. The idea is if you lend us art for the trail, when the trail is over, we give you the art back. Unless you want to sell it and somebody wants to buy it, in which case we will broker that sale for you and we will take a zero cut. So all the proceeds from that sale go back to the artist. Because I have this crazy idea that artists ought to be paid for their work. I know, it's madness. The benefit to the people who display the art is that hopefully a good chunk of the well in excess of 10,000 people who will be coming to the convention may come into their shop and possibly buy things. And hopefully the, the increased footfall and the increased sales will make it well worth people's while for displaying the art. And if you're listening to this and you are a local independent business in Harrogate, and you know, maybe maybe we can stretch the the, the the trail out into Knaresborough and stuff. I'm not sure how practical that would be. But if you're listening and you'd like to get involved as a host for Art on the Art Trail, again, info at uk is the email address to get in touch with. And we'll see what we can work out. I want to involve as many people in this as I humanly can. But that's not the only thing I want to do. Oh, no. The other thing I want to do—I've kind of made a start on this—but this is the more difficult one because it involves a lot more people than just me. What I want to do is get people making their own comics, specifically short-form comics that tell either your own story or a story about the local area. Maybe you want to tell me about Blind Jack. Maybe you want to tell me about Mother Shipton. Maybe you want to tell me about the tunnels underneath the stray. Maybe you want to tell me about, as as a customer was yesterday, maybe you want to tell me about the narrow-gauge railway that led from Bilton to the gasworks on the Ripon Road. All kinds of things about local history you could tell me, or you could tell me about yourself. I want people to make their own very short comics about something local, and I want to collect those comics into... A book, a proper bound comic collection of Harrogate stories, which we could sell at the con and in my shop and in other people's shops if they want to stock it. Now, for the avoidance of awkwardness about who gets paid and who doesn't get paid and um, copyright and all of that, uh, my thinking, and this will all need to be finalised, obviously, but my thinking about this is that everyone will own the rights to everything they produce, they would be voluntarily submitting it to the collection and giving that by submitting it to the collection, they are giving giving us permission to put it in the collection. But we wouldn't claim to own any of it. And if you wanted to sell it to somebody else, then you could do that. If you wanted to put it in your own collection of your own stuff later on when you've got more of it, you could do that. And the idea would be that nobody's getting paid for this. I'm certainly not going to make any money out of it. The idea would be that assuming we cover costs, if we don't, then I, as the guy who owns Destination Venus, will swallow the deficit. Um, So it's at no risk to anybody else. But assuming we cover our costs, any hypothetical profit that is made would go to a charity yet to be decided. And we would take the ideas of the contributors into account as to what kind of charity we might want to support with any hypothetical money we hypothetically made. My experience is that not a lot of profit ever gets made by this kind of venture. So, you know, I'll throw that out there. This is not in any way a get-rich-quick scam. But I want people in Harrogate to have the experience of not only making their own comics. I know lots of people in Harrogate do that because I talk to them. And I know that there are lots of people at their dining room tables and in their bedrooms just drawing for the pleasure of it. But I want those people to also have the experience of seeing that work in print and seeing other people react to that work in print, because I know that that can be a powerful thing. And it might just kickstart a few careers. Now, where those careers might go in this shifting, twirling, turning world of modern publishing and AI writing and all of that nonsense, I don't know. I don't know if there are viable careers in comics still. What I do know is that comics are still brilliant and comics are still wonderful to produce. And I kind of just have this faith that if people continue to make the art, the art will endure. And that's got to be good, right? So if you want to get involved in any of that, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. If you are at a school and you think it might be fun if I came in and showed willing groups of kids, perhaps like yourself, how to make such comics and gave you hints and tips on structure and all that about how to do comics. I have a workshop that can help you with that. Uh, I'm happy to come in and do stuff. I have worked with schools on a paid basis. I'm not really suggesting this for that or even that for this. I mean, anybody who wants to pay me, I'm well up for it. But I'm happy to come in to any school on a lunchtime or for an hour or so after school for free to run a comics creating workshop to help get kids started. If you run a community group uh, working with older people uh, and by older people, I mean older than kids. So you know maybe it's people with learning difficulties. Maybe it's genuinely old folk. Maybe it's like an old over 70s kind of group. Um, maybe it's any other kind of social group. Maybe you're the scouts. Maybe you're the venture scouts. Maybe you're a walking group and it's raining. I don't know, but if you think that you have stories you might want to tell in your group and you want me to come in and talk to your folks about how, how to create comics, happy to do that as well. And again, for free, at least in the first instance. If you want me to turn up every week for for like three months, we might have to have a chat. But at least in the first instance, and most people only want to see me once. Oh, I made that sound bad, didn't I? Didn't mean it quite like that. Most people don't need to, to have more than one of these workshops to get the idea of what we're doing. I'm happy to do the first one for free. Always. Always. So whether you're a primary school, a secondary school, a youth group, a church group, uh, an, an elderly people's group. Happy to come in and help you tell your stories through comics. If anyone's thinking that sounds good, but. I don't think I can draw and I don't think any of the people in my group would be able to draw very well either. Trust me, that doesn't matter. Uh, I can show you how to make art not a problem. So info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to go if you want any more information on all that. And if all that sounded vaguely incoherent, then info at destinationvenus.co.uk. And I'll try and explain it more clearly. OK, uh, but I'm really want to encourage people to make their own short comics and just have the experience of that creativity and that freedom to do stuff. You'll find that you don't need big publishers. You can just make the comics you want to make. And I really, really want to push that this year. But with that, let's get on to some more geeky news. So if you were listening on Thursday then you will have heard my review of the final episode of season three of the Mandalorian. And my speculation that that could be just a place to end that whole story with spoilers. Din sitting outside his cabin and Grogu having become his official apprentice, um, levitating frogs in the way that Grogu likes. Dave Filoni has had something to say about that. Dave Filoni, if you are unaware, is the co-creator of the Mandalorian TV show alongside Jon Favreau. And during the Star Wars celebration, he had some things to say. And he's also talked to Empire magazine about moving that area of story, that bit of time, that post-Return of the Jedi era of the Star Wars universe, onto the big screen. Um, When asked, you know, would a film just be wrapping up storylines or would it be its own thing? uh, He said that. And there are small stories, and then there's the big story of the day. And that films like A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, they told important parts of the story that and, and really defined the history of the period. Kind of like the Second World War kind of defines the 1940s in real-world history. And then he says, you know, there they're kind of the smaller stories underneath that. And that's what they've been building in The Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett and all that, um, and Ashoka and all of that. Um, But he said, you know, a theatrical experience has to have the big idea. Um, This is a direct quote now. A monumental moment in the time period that changes what's happening. And he kind of says, you know, as an example, what Tony Gilroy did in Andor and what he did in Rebels is – Defined by and ended basically when Luke blows up the Death Star, uh, and you know that's the moment that defines the era. Not Cassian Andor breaking out of prison. That's a thing that happened, but it's a small story. It's the Death Star blowing up. That's the big thing, and it's the big thing that needs to be in the movie. What that big thing will be, he is tight-lipped about. Uh, but he says he's been leaving clues as to what's to come. Across the different mediums, so the TV, the comics, the books, all of that kind of stuff, for a while, Um, which he says he's dropped in in preparation for what comes later. Um, John Favreau has also had stuff to say about this. Uh, He grew up with the expanded Star Wars universe. You know, when he was younger, there were no movies. Uh, This was the 90s, you know, there were comic books, there were novels, Uh, there were things that expanded the universe. Um and there are decisions to be made to fit all that together because of course all of that's gone. It, some of it's coming back. I mean Admiral Thrawn, for instance, is part of all of that. And he until the most recent season of The Mandalorian, he did not exist in the official Star Wars universe. When Disney took over, they basically said everything that's not one of the six main films, prior to us taking over, that didn't happen. Post us taking over Everything that happens in whatever medium is canon. And what is happening as a result of that is that Star Wars fans like Favreau and like Filoni are cherry picking the bits that are now Star Wars legends, which is to say stories that have been told but aren't canon. They're cherry picking the bits they like and they're putting them back into canon by introducing characters like Thrawn into their little sandbox. And Favreau really does liken this as thinking like a kid. You know, he says, you know, we joke. It's like we're playing with action figures, like what's in the box. Let's play with what's in the box. Uh, And, you know, that's what we all did when we were kids. And that's what he's still doing now. But he also says, you know, it comes down to story first. The deeper you get, the more important it is to have a story that fits the Star Wars universe. Star Wars has to feel like Star Wars. And I like that. Will we ever actually get a big screen Mandalorian style thing or even just any kind of big screen movie set in this era? I hope so. I mean, again, I don't believe announcements. Uh, I'll believe a thing is happening when it happens. But I'm hopeful. I I like this time period, this, this early New Republic era of Star Wars, when... You know, the rebellion has won and is now facing what all rebellions face after they've won, which is, oh, God, now what? Because suddenly you have to run things and suddenly you're not the heroes anymore. You're the government all of a sudden and everybody hates the government. So what do you do? How do you keep order and maintain your control without becoming the thing you've defeated? look anywhere in real world history and you will see revolutions that have completely failed to achieve what they wanted to do because they turned into the people they defeated is that what happened with the first order maybe interesting to find out isn't it but we've been talking for a long time and we haven't had a jingle so i think it's perhaps time we took a look outside of spacex to see what's happening in I've really missed that jingle. I really have. So, what has been going on in space? Well, I'm glad you asked. couple of not unrelated stories to start with. Uh, The first is that Voyager 2's lifespan has been extended thanks to some engineering ingenuity. In fact, no, it's not ingenuity. It is rock-solid genius. Voyager 2, if you're unfamiliar, was a spacecraft that was launched in 1977 and has almost certainly, they're still arguing about it, but I think they've more or less agreed, now passed out of our solar system into interstellar space. I genuinely can't remember whether it's Voyager 1 or Voyager 2 that's furthest away. Obviously, Voyager 2 was launched second. That's why it's Voyager 2. But they've taken different paths. And one did more twiddly bits inside the solar system. And I can't remember which one it was. Um... Voyager is the mission that famously featured in the first Star Trek movie, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, spoilers for a movie that's, actually I've lost track of how old Star Trek The Motion Picture is now, but it's very, very old. Um, turns out it's the villain, kind of. It's also the space probe that has the famous golden disc, which was proposed by Carl Sagan and which shows the position of our solar system relative to various other fixed points in space or the stars um, and carries recordings of sounds from Earth including Whale Song which is a plot point in Star Trek The Motion Picture and uh, the greetings are from the children of Earth in hundreds of languages And it's a cool thing. Uh, the idea wasn't really to give aliens information, it was much more to make us think about ourselves and our responsibility to the planet, because Carl Sagan was kind of a genius like that. But I mean, this is a very old machine now, and it really wasn't expected to still be functioning. Um, It's an interstellar spacecraft. It was always intended to travel a long way from the sun. And so it was never equipped with solar panels because the sun ain't working out where it is now. What it is powered by is um, a battery, a nuclear battery, basically. And it's been running out of power for literally years. And every time it looks like this is probably it for Voyager, it's just going to have to be left to drift and the mission will have to be ended. They figure out a way to extend its life and they've done it again. They're rerouting power to some of the science instruments, from a non-essential voltage regulator, potentially, potentially extending the spacecraft's life to 2026. They were expecting to have to end the mission this year. They may have got another three years out of it. For a beast that was launched in 1977, they might get 50 years out of this thing. That's incredible. Incredible. Plutonium, however, which powers missions like Voyager, is in short supply, it turns out. Now, missions mission that travels far away from the sun need nuclear power to operate. At the moment, that's the only game in town. We've got solar or we've got nuclear. That's it. We haven't got anything else that can power things in space. And as I said, if you go too far from the sun, solar doesn't work. But the isotope that the generators that are used in such spacecraft use, plutonium-238, since you asked, is very difficult to produce. I'm not going to go into all the scientific reasons why. Just trust me, it is. Now, only about 1.5 kilograms of plutonium-238 is produced in the United States each year. Now, that is not going to be enough to power all of the planetary science missions that are planned over the next decade. Now, NASA has been developing more efficient power technologies, but has had to scale those efforts back due to the inevitable budget cuts. So what does that mean? Well, it means one of a couple of things, either they are going to have to put some more money into figuring out how to be more power efficient, which would be the sensible way to go, so that's probably not the one they're going to choose. Or They have to just bite the bullet and not do as much planetary science, which would be a huge shame. Or find another source for plutonium-238. Now, that obviously would be attractive, but it's not as easy as just, you know, ordering some. Because not many other people are making plutonium-238 either. I suspect the Russians are, but they're not in a cooperative mood right now. It's probably the Iranians are, but they haven't been in a a cooperative mood to work with the Americans for, oh, well, ever. And so that's not looking likely. So unfortunately, it looks as though NASA is going to have some very hard decisions to make about which missions it proceeds with. Because ultimately, you can't do your mission if your machines ain't powered. If your instruments don't work, your instruments don't work. So that's a problem. So let's have some good news, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, Well, since the last time we really looked at space, the brilliant little helicopter Ingenuity continues to fly above Mars and take amazing pictures uh, of the Martian surface, which is what it's for, and also of the rover Perseverance, which is carrying ingenuity. And, well, that's always fun, isn't it? Uh, the person, During its 51st flight, uh, which was a couple of weeks ago now, the little drone aircraft, I'm going to call it an aircraft, not a spacecraft. It's not designed to operate in space. It's designed to operate in atmosphere. Captured a view from about 12 metres or 40 feet up. Um, now, It's not in the show notes because I haven't done any show notes, but just trust me. If you look at the thing, you can, if you look really hard, see the Perseverance rover in the image. But you can't very easily because it almost completely blends in with the red rocks at the rim of the Belva Crater. Uh, And it's just a really cool image, though. And I love to see images of Mars and to be able to see one taken from the air. Just gives you so much more perspective. It looks like a planet from Star Wars. If it wasn't quite so red, it could almost be tattooing. It's—it just makes the planet feel more real. So Google that if you can. Uh, if you just just Google ingenuity Mars photo, and you'll come up with some cool stuff. Um, slightly less good news: the Japanese Ispace lunar lander is presumed to have suffered a controlled flight into terrain, which is to say they've crashed it. Um, The Hakuto-R Mission 1 lander uh, was developed by a private company called iSpace, attempted a landing on the lunar surface on April 25th uh, while I was away, uh, and it ended with a loss of communication. Now, that usually means they've crashed it. Uh, The iSpace CEO, uh, Takeshi Hakamada, said that the mission still yielded a lot of valuable information that will help future missions succeed. I'm sure it did. One of them is don't crash. And in an unusual burst of loquaciousness, China has announced new plans for two of its space science programs. China is normally quite tight lipped about this sort of thing, Uh, but the National China Space Administration announced last week, I think it was last week, that its Tianwen-3 Mars sample return mission, scheduled to launch around 2030, will be using a small helicopter like NASA's Ingenuity to collect samples near the accompanying lander. The agency also announced its plans to build and launch an array of telescopes in deep space to search for habitable planets orbiting other stars. So, repeating what NASA has already done, if we want to be cynical about it. I don't. I think I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on this one. I think this is just China doing stuff because it's cool. And because it wants to show that it can do what the big boys can do, because that sounds patronizing. But China, I don't think quite sees itself as that on the world stage yet, but it really, really wants to. And by doing this kind of thing and by saying, Oh, you did that. Well, we've done it better. I think that's where China is in this particular arena right now. And, All power to them, actually. As far as I am concerned, the more people doing cool stuff in space, the better. But we are running out of time, so we will leave that right there. Okay, so just a couple of things to round up before we finish. First of all, if you are listening to this on the day it drops, Coronation Day, the 6th of May then it's also free comic book day because the first Saturday in May always is. So if you get yourself down to Destination Venus this afternoon, you can get some totally free comics, genuinely, totally free. There's no catch. There's no purchase necessary. You don't even have to talk to me if you don't want. They'll all be on a rack. You can just come in and anything that bears the free comic book day label is free. Everything else, you do still have to pay for. I need to be very clear about that. But, free comic day is a time when you can come in and just try stuff. There's no risk. So, if you were wondering whether comics were for you, well, now's your chance to find out. Also, it's so long since I recorded the beginning of this show that now I'm at the end of this show, I genuinely can't remember whether I told you that if you are missing, if you don't normally listen to the Thursday show... And this is like your normal listening slot. And you were wondering, hang on, where have the reviews of The Mandalorian and Picard gone? They were in Thursday's show. This is the second show of the week. I'm not beginning to have it. Don't panic. So you can listen again via your Harrogate Community Radio thing, wherever you go on the app or on the website. You can do that. Or you can go to our podcast feed. Uh, just look for Geeking with Destination Venus. Wherever fine pods are casted, and you'll find it there. It's uh, episode 56. Uh, oh, and I spelt the name wrong. It's called Belated Exultations, and I'd like to blame my dyslexia for the fact that I spelled the title wrong. I spelled Exaltations wrong. Uh, no, I've just got fat fingers, and I apparently didn't have spell check turned on. So that's entirely on me. That is about it. We will be back on Thursday with our regular one episode a week show with, you know, all the latest geeky news, views and reviews, maybe some space, maybe some science, maybe some comic book recommendations, because I've not done any of those for a while either. But until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else, enjoy your weekend, and we will see you really soon.